Welcome to The Scrum, the podcast where we talk about politics and political media. I'm Adam Riley. Recently, there's been a lot of talk about the Pacheco Law, which limits government's ability to privatize services. The Pacheco Law and its supporters took a hit not too long ago when the state Senate and state House of Representatives agreed to suspend it at the MBTA for three years. This is part of the push to reform the T in the wake of its disastrous meltdown this past winter. And it was a big setback for organized labor. So we decided to sit down with Steve Tolman, the president of the Massachusetts AFL-CIO, to get his take on that outcome and also on some other defeats that labor has experienced recently. Naturally, we first stopped to get coffee at the Dunkin' Donuts across from WGBH. And every time someone saw Steve Tolman, who lives in Brighton, where we're located, something like this would happen. How are you, Ellen? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? So after that happened a few times, Steve's big and toasted was finally prepared. We grabbed the bag and headed back into the WGBH studios where we sat down and talked to Steve about the state of organized labor right now in Massachusetts. All right, so I'll go ahead and start while Steve gets a little more of the, the big and toasty. Steve, I was looking at uh, an article that ran in the Globe right about a year ago. I think it was a Mike Levinson article in which John Hurst, the president of the Retailers Association, uh, Association of Massachusetts, was quoted saying, I've been at this 25 years and I've never seen them, i.e. organized labor, this strong. I can't remember a time when they were sweeping everything. Uh, he was talking, among other things, about Marty Walsh being elected mayor in 2013 about the minimum wage being hiked from $8 an hour to $11 an hour, also in, I think, 2013, and that Bill of Rights for domestic workers that you guys were able to pass on Beacon Hill. Since then, and this is the sort of the hook for getting you in here, there seemed to me to have been some setbacks from the time that John Hurst was lavishing praise on you guys running the table. I'm thinking of most recently the Pacheco Law being suspended at the MBTA for three years and the uh, budget that was just passed on Beacon Hill. Also, just to name a couple other examples, um, your brother, Warren Tolman, losing in the uh, AG fight for the Democratic nomination to Maura Healey. Um, Martha Coakley losing the governor's race to Charlie Baker. And then Governor Baker freezing that billion-dollar expansion of the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. Two which billion, Two billion, okay. So that's a long way of saying, and I'm going to shut up and let you talk. It seems to me like there have been some really high-profile victories of late for the AFL-CIO and organized labor generally, and some pretty high-profile setbacks. So where do you see labor right now, politically speaking, in the state? Well, well Adam, thank you for the, uh, uh, to pointing out the successes, of course, and, and for John Hurst. And to start out with John Hurst, he's a dear friend. I worked with him when I was on the up in the legislature. We didn't always agree on everything, but he's a, he's a, he's a nice man. Actually, I just did a testimonial because he's getting this great national award. And John is a true leader for his industry and usually uh, pretty accurate when he says things. But in the case where he said that we were sweeping the table, clearly we weren't. Organized labor represents about 400,000 families in Massachusetts, and in particular, Organized labor doesn't just represent the members that we that pay dues to us. 
We represent all working people, and that's what the Domestic Workers Bill was about, a bill where the abuse in the households was absolutely ex you, you could not believe what was going on in households with domestics, with no rules, no regulations, no guidelines. So that, that's a no-brainer. We fought for that. And that was a no-brainer. If you look when you at talk about domestics, by the way, you're talking about people like housekeepers, and nannies, right. domestic workers. That's exactly right. And believe it or not, here in America, it's the closest thing to slavery that I have ever seen because so many of these were held. They, they were holding. They had the, some of the residents would hold papers of these individuals. The mistreatment was shocking. So what did that bill that you guys got passed? Domestic on? workers what it was a bill we we worked with community organizations and all of us and truly the leadership of the House of Representatives. In fact, the very own state representative Michael Moran was the chief sponsor of that. That was a significant piece of legislation, and a victory for Massachusetts, not so to speak organized labor because not one of our members were probably even involved in that, but we fought for that because it was an injustice. That's who organized labor is. Now, when I left the legislature in October 11, I left the legislature to most importantly to run for the presidency of the AFL-CIO, which I was elected, and my goal, my goal is to re-educate our members, but most importantly, stand up against injustices. And when you bring up this, um, Mass, the Taxpayer Protection Act, which everybody wants to refer to as the Pacheco Law, and because he was one of the senators involved in it, but 200 legislators supported that law back in the early 90s. And the reason for it is because it was a guardrail. The Taxpayer Protection Act basically would say you could privatize, but you have to go through the auditor's office and you have to make sure, remember this is the public good, you have to make sure that the service is going to be equal or better and that it won't just be saving money in wages and benefits. So you had a standard. Now, that standard is what has been eliminated, not the right to just privatize. It's not the right. Now, there is no standard in that the T or the leadership can just come out and say, okay, well, we're going to change this or change that. Now, how they do that in the past, how they did do that, they had to go through the auditor's office. And what I want to be clear about is four-fifths of the times that was attempted, they were successful. So it was only one-fifth out of 15 times in 20 years or so, 12 of them were successful. So we're talking about three times where they weren't allowed to privatize, and this is the law that they have privatized. So rather than looking at it as they, everyone refers to it as Pachico Pachico, they don't want to talk about what it is. It's the Taxpayer Protection Act because it determines that the public good is a valuable commodity. And if you're going to privatize, we want to make sure that the services are going to be available. That standard is what has been eliminated. Okay. Yeah, I, I got to say, Steve, you had me up until this point. I mean, it was the tease a mess, to, to put it sim simply put. And um, there's a lot of people responsible for it. Um, personally, I hold Deval Patrick. Is, is sort of public enemy number one for not pushing for serious reform. But um, the, the, the Pacheco law has been suspended for the T because the T is just is, is broken down. I mean, uh, wait, wait, wait. you know, Pete, you say the T is broken down. Let's take a couple of look at it. Think of some statistics, and all of this is out there. First of all, the Pioneer Institute comes out with this report for the MBTA. Yeah. And in the report, they immediately say there's like 58 
days is the average T employee that's off. Guess what? When we researched the facts and Commonwealth Magazine did a little work, it turns out it's yeah, in the 20s. Great stuff, so it's in the right. 20s. So that the Pioneer Institute misinformed everybody, got everybody no, upset. No, well, people, let, me, let me finish. Got everybody so upset about that, and they were wrong, and they misled people. And that got everybody thinking the tea is bad, the tea the workers. But to go back to the snowstorm, Pete. Those workers worked night and day. They gave their heart and soul to keep whatever they could in the tea going, and then we haven't invested in the tea. The oldest, here's, here's a statistic. The oldest equipment in New York is newer than our best equipment hmm. in the state. So we haven't invested in the tea. Listen, I There's, won't. I, I it won't, isn't the employees. I, I, listen, as someone who took the tea every single day during that blizzard, mm -hmm. I was, you, you know, driven by great bus drivers. I saw the people on the platforms were terrific. There's a big management problem at the T. And in, it's, it starts at the top, but it, it, it goes throughout the whole system. Um, I actually think the, you know, the individual people running, you know, driving the vehicles, which are the only ones I come in contact with, are terrific. But um, we just have one of those situations where We've got to rebuild the thing, and you, you, you sort of have to start from scratch. Steve, what you just said a moment ago, that to me it invites a natural follow-up question. The question that what you just said raises for me is, if in fact the Taxpayer Protection Act is as innocuous as you make it out to be, why was it so important to Governor Baker to have it suspended at the T, and why did the House and Senate go along with him. So what do you think the answer well, to those well, two questions is? Well, the, the very clear answer is specific. It wasn't the House and Senate. Think of this. There was never a roll call in the House. There was never a roll call in the House. It was written into the budget. Organized Labor had 60 co-sponsors to repeal it, and we were ready and armed to debate it. It never happened. Now, I don't know why it not ha didn't happen. If I was there in the body, on the floor, you can rest assured it would have happened. Now, when I mean that, we had 60 co-sponsors of an amendment to repeal this, armed with ammunition to talk about what I just talked about. In addition, why Charlie Baker needs this, I don't know. I am puzzled by that because four-fifths of the time they were able to privatize. Think of this. It's not privatization isn't a problem in Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, we have the largest public transportation privatization in the country in this railroad contract. That's all private. So privatization is, in many ways, is always not for the public good. And that's the strength that we have to argue. In public transportation, the public good has to be weighed. And in the Taxpayer Protection Act, it standardized language which said, if you're going to privatize, you've got to justify the service. All right, so if you don't That's know, been eliminated. If you don't know why Governor Baker wanted it, why do you think that House and Senate leadership didn't allow this to be debated on the floor? Well, that's a message for the... That's a question for the leadership of the House, really. I House, think, not I, Senate. Well, the House initially, because that's where it initiated. And let me tell you, I was, fr I was very frustrated that we didn't get a roll call vote because... A roll call or even a discussion on the matter would have brought out a lot of statistics that were misinformed in the newspapers by the Pioneer Institute in their faulty uh, reporting. I'm assuming you asked Speaker DeLeo why he wouldn't let you guys debate it on the floor. What did he say? I haven't asked Mr. DeLeo, Speaker DeLeo that, frankly. I, um, I hope to ask him that when we get together. But I'm pretty frustrated because it was, it was 
put in the budget. It was held in conference committee, and frankly, it was never voted on as an individual piece in either branch. You know, I think that there's a lot of people talking past each other. The fact is that the team needs a, a massive overhaul. Um, it, it, it needs new management. It needs new financing. Um, I don't share the same. Um, I, I, don't, I, I don't think the T uh, uh, repair services is, 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 is great as, as you do. Um, you know, I will admit that I think that the, uh, the biggest failure is a management failure, and it's a management failure that took place under a largely Democratic administration. No, no, no. Now, Pete, the last eight years have been Democratic administration, but eight before that we had 16 of Republicans. It's a long time. It's like Obama can't blame the Republicans anymore. Deval well, Patrick had a major feeling. He talked tea, he talked tea. He had me eating out of his hand thinking, here's the great tea advocate. He leaves office and the whole house of cards came tumbling down. What's your take? But we're, visiting the past isn't going to do any of us any good. Things are moving in another direction. And, you know, the legislation, the, the, the Pacheco bill is just one piece of a much bigger process. I actually do think we agree on a lot of things because I agree with you. There's a major management problem. I, there's an absolute management problem. But I got to tell you, Deval Patrick at least had the guts to put the tax on, you know, to tie the gasoline tax to transportation and to tie it to CPI. Unfortunately, it was repealed and we lost that battle. Deval Patrick had the courage to invest in the T. I haven't heard one single word from the current administration about how we're going to invest in the public transportation well, listen, system. By, by the way, I can't speak for the Baker administration, but in talking to people you know, very close to the leadership in the House and the Senate. They said, sure, Duvall put this on the table, but he put it on the table after the local elections. There was no appetite in That's the House. review mirror stuff, don't Well, we're, we're talking about right, review mirrors I gotta, right I got to make you guys do a little more rear view mirror stuff because you talk about Duvall Patrick having the courage to ask people to invest in the T. Governor Patrick also had the courage to limit the ability of municipal workers in collective bargaining, which was something I know that I believe was considered a setback for your membership and for others. This is back in 2011. What, in retrospect, is or was Governor Patrick's record when it came to the concerns of working men and women and organized labor? Was he good? Was he bad? Was he somewhere in the middle? Well, I would say it was mixed. I would say it was mixed. In many ways, he, he did not defend collective bargaining the way we would have liked to have seen him uh, defend collective bargaining. But let's face it, Deval Patrick was, in my opinion, one of the finest speakers I've ever heard in my life. Oh, he was amazing. He was a great leader. And in history in the macro will display what he was and who he was. And I don't think he'll be disappointed with what he did. I know we have run into a lot of problems here, but let's focus on the T. You know what? Because I am outraged that for some reason the legislature, without a lot of thought, only because a few people thought it was important, they've decided to suspend the Taxpayer Protection Act without proper debate, and most importantly, when the issues, Pete, if you said, are so much broader than the workers who toil day in and day out. I think, I want to shift us off the tee a little bit. I'm curious about what you think it says about American politics today, maybe about the state of the Democratic Party today, 
that you can have a governor like Deval Patrick, who was a progressive darling, who, from your vantage point, did not defend collective bargaining rights as much as you would have liked him to. And then now you have, you have a setup on Beacon Hill where you have a Republican governor, you have a very progressive state Senate president, and you have a Senate House speaker, and the Democratic-led legislature is also not defending collective bargaining the way you would like to see them defend it. Well, are you what talking, is it? Let, let me ask yeah. you, is it collective bargaining for blue-collar trade unions, or is it collective bargaining for public employee unions? Because I think there's a real distinction there. Um, well, let's, let's get Steve to weigh in on that. Very clearly, you say that Deval Patrick didn't protect all of interests. He's elected to represent his interest, what he believes, and we differed on a few issues. So that happens. I didn't agree with certain things. But let me tell you, I am here representing workers. The Massachusetts AFL-CIO, it's frankly um, the umbrella group of organized labor. And to me, to me, collective bargaining is sacrosanct. There's nothing more important because it doesn't give me the right to anything. It just gives us a level playing field. And when you want to attack the level playing field, you add to the disparity in income equality, which everybody thinks is a wonderful thing to talk about. In the last 40 years, middle class in America has diminished significantly. And the trend of it going down is the same bar of organized labor going down. The numbers are right on par. No, I and, won't. I won't argue. I know with that. that. I won't argue with that. I mean, the 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 great economic misfortune was the Taft Hartley bill. You that's, know, that's you know because it made it more difficult to organize. Most importantly, and, and and had to. But here's the thing, it doesn't mean we're going to roll up our sleeves. We were defeated in this particular issue on the Taxpayer Protection Act. My question is, or my issue is that I want to educate people that that wasn't a good law to, in my opinion, repeal, because it doesn't change anything, except that it makes the employees who work there now have less job security. It lowers the income. When privatization takes over public employees, it's national, and study after study shows where they save and where they profit is by diminishing workers' wages and benefits. I want to make sure that Peter gets his question answered. Uh, Peter, if I understood it right, you were you wanted to know if Steve thought that collective bargaining for uh, government workers was under assault or collective bargaining for other types of, of workers. Well, I, is that I, right? Implicit in my question is the belief that the public increasingly draws a distinction between collective bargaining for the, the classic trade unions and collective bargaining for public employee unions. And I think that the interests of working people in the interests of public employee unions are increasingly diverging. They haven't completely diverged yet. That's my Steve, belief, and that's the that? feedback I get, as opposed to the, the trade unions. Unfortunately, the blue-collar trade unions are so hampered by federal legislation that's now decades old that it is an unfair playing field. Well, let me just say, the difference between private and public, I think everybody has their own interpretation of what they are. But with respect to public employees, when I was growing up, when I was 18 years old, let me say, say this, I come out of high school, I went to work for the railroad, and I had a job with a pension and with health care benefits. Now tell me where an 18-year-old coming out of high school can get a job like that anymore. That was because of organized labor that I stepped into that job and it was a good job. And it made, I made wages where I could raise a family, where I could pay for schooling, and I was one of eight children. 
And, you know, actually, I was very fortunate, of course, working for the railroad. In fact, early on, I sold uh, tickets down at South Station, and that's where I met my wife. She was buying a commuter rail ticket, and um, the best ticket I ever sold, certainly. No, no holds barred. Uh, did, I got to ask. Probably the most expensive, but... Just just out know. of curiosity, so, so did you um, ask your... your uh, future wife out during that transaction, or was she the one who put a move on you? No, it was when you, she kept coming back and just hanging outside by my office and staring at me. Now, just kidding, of course. <laughs> now she's going to kill me for that. I hope she never hears it. But certainly, she became a regular. T actually, what happened? She became a regular, and she would buy a one ticket. And we had a ten ride, sixty day. So I explained to her she, it was fifteen twenty five as opposed to spending twenty dollars a week. You know, with the tickets, I said you get a ten ride, sixty days if you use them. And uh, then I got the courage up, and I asked her if she'd like to go for a cup of coffee. And certainly, guess what she said? Well, I don't drink coffee, but I'll have a Coke. Thank God for Coke, huh? <laughs> so as nervous as I was, we did go have a Coke, and uh, the rest is history. Is the day ever going to return? I, I sadly think the answer is no, where the trade unions are, are going to be able to see themselves come back. I mean, um, we have Republican majorities in both houses. Right. Um, it, it seems to me that the problem, the challenge that organized labor in the Northeast, and I'm just trying to limit it to, to, to here just, faces. You know, you're, you're talking national, so people yeah, but, are confused. Because, right. No, no, that's, that's a good point. But if it weren't for the, and I, I see the, the, the labor movement in a, in a bind. If it weren't for the public employees unions, they'd, they'd be shriveling up. Um, but, Pete, wouldn't that also mean, remember, that if we keep standards up, like what, what did President Kennedy say, rising tide raises all boats, if we didn't have that in municipal government, what would the standards be in private industry? You know, you have to ask yourself you, that it, question. It, it, it's a legitimate question. I don't, I don't buy it. Um, I, I look at, I, I look at as, a, as a Boston public school parent, I look at... Um, people, you know, like my wife and myself banging our heads against the wall to try to get um, uh, rules changed so the teachers who aren't up to snuff can be dismissed. By the way, all three of my kids went through the Boston public schools. They got a solid education. I think the Boston public teachers are terrific. But I think the union looks out more for their members than they do for the kids. See, now we disagree there because you know, the people can make it. You have a right to representation. Or you, as a union representative, you have the right to. You have to represent people, whether they do something good or bad, or whether it's fireable or not. But I have never met a union representative that wants to protect somebody that's incompetent, and I have never done that myself. Who represents the parents? That's proper management. And, well, and you just said it. You've had a great experience in Boston public schools, right? In spite of the teachers' union. Not in spite of the teachers, in spite of the teachers' union. All right, I'm going to shift gears for a second. You mentioned earlier uh, disagreeing vehemently with Governor Baker on the Taxpayer Protection Act, but I know you're also working with the governor when it comes to trying to combat the opioid abuse epidemic here in Massachusetts. What's your relationship like with Governor Baker? I think he's a terrific individual. He's a hardworking man who's committed to certain goals. Some of them I may not agree with, and he publicly says some of my ideas and goals he may not agree with. But you know what? We can find common ground. And we, I truly believe that we will find common ground. We just have to get that balance. And, 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 and on the tee, 
I want to see more come from proper management, more with investment before we attack workers. What about not on the tee? What are some points of agreement between you and Governor Baker, a potential agreement? Well, time is going to tell. It ha there hasn't been too much. We feel, unfortunately, I feel that he's been listening to the Pioneer Institute in their inappropriate and uh, misguided information, which the press has picked up and run with like it's standard, and then we find out it's not proper. So I think he's listened to that group. He came out of the Pioneer Institute. That's not somebody who has ever, ever cared about organized labor, that we have always been viewed as somebody that is a stumbling block to them or somebody that's in their way. They've always tried to diminish our strength. And unfortunately, we differ in that area. Um, I hope to be able to look at He's the governor. He's going to try to govern for all people. And I think especially what he has done with the opiates, I think he's brought that issue to the forefront. Everybody understands it. It's also coupled with an unfortunately tragic level of overdoses that we've all seen. But the governor is going to try to govern. I think he really wants to work and make Massachusetts great. And my message is stop attacking workers if you want to make Massachusetts great because it's the Massachusetts workers, whether it's municipal government or state government, that can make this Commonwealth great, and that's our goal. I, I, I wanted to shift gear in just the few minutes we have left and talk about national politics. Let me throw you a real softball. <laughs> what do you think of Governor Walker? Who? <laughs> I, I, listen, I got to tell you, he's a young, handsome guy. But boy, oh boy, I couldn't disagree with him more on issues. And you know what? If that's the best that the Republicans have, that they got somebody that takes great pride in comparing a group of organized labor uh, representatives protesting publicly to ISIS? I mean, this is what he said. That's totally inappropriate. We are Americans. We have built this nation. Rich Trumka, the national president, says it best about organized labor. We wake up America with nurses and milkmen and paper deliveries, and we put America to bed with, our, with public service, with police. We make this country and this state it work. And so why are we the problem when we know we're a very wealthy nation, but somehow we get blamed for all the badness. What would the implications be for your members if, for example, Scott Walker was elected president or Jeb Bush was elected president and you had a Republican president with those sort of political and economic beliefs governing with a Republican Senate and a Republican House? What would it mean? Why don't we turn it around and say, what do you say we take back to Congress and we got Bernie Sanders with Hillary Clinton as vice president? How would that be? Is that what an would that mean? Did no. you just endorse no. Bernie no, Sanders? But, no, but when you go in innuendos, Adam, we have to think about, oh, okay. No, no, it's not, it's because not innuendo. It's a, it's a very, it, it, it is a hypothetical situation which president? could come to pass. Was it going to be Walker president and Jeb Bush vice president? No, I, I don't know who the VP is, but I'm just wondering. That, see, I mean, I think it's a legitimate question. I what would the it VP mean? candidate for the Republican Party is going to be the governor of South Carolina. Oh, okay. you heard it here first. All right, so let's say we I have a, a, a Walker Nikki so, Haley ticket. I'm just wondering so how do you feel you know, a sense of risk right now at this moment in national politics? Absolutely. Yeah. On a very serious note, absolutely. But not just for organized labor, for America. For America. First of all, who was it in this government that allowed the FDA to have the latitude to reintroduce opiates the way they have? And what harm has that done on a society? Wait, did you just blame Republicans for the opiate crisis? Did I say there were Republicans? I, I'm just saying, who is? We have to ask that question. 
who was it who gave Big Pharma the opportunity? In 1914, going back thought, to that. I never thought of that. That's but think about it. In 1914, we banned heroin. Point. We banned heroin. In 1914. In 1998, with the makers of OxyContin, we reintroduced it in synthetic form. It's created the worst epidemic in our society. under President Bill Clinton, right? Would it have been Clinton? Yeah, I think yeah. it would have been Clinton. And also, as you know, well, people... Still, but there's the FDA. It's both of them. It's, it's, look, it, it is a it's, bipartisan. No, no, it's, that's still... That's a very interesting point that I have... I mean, maybe it's my ignorance. By the way, I was I second that. I haven't thought of it in those terms. I'm not sure I that. see it as a partisan issue. No, but. I see it as part of the whole... De the move towards deregulation, which when Jimmy Carter went down that route, I, I mean, I was a young guy, young financial reporter. I remember thinking to myself, this is, gonna, this is not going to end well, <laughs> was just my... My gut, and as the opiate crisis, as a, a, an unintended consequence of deregulation, is an interesting thing to think about. I think. Well, it's certainly broken a lot of hearts. All right, it would not be a conversation about Massachusetts politics or things touching on Massachusetts politics if we didn't bring up the Olympics. Peter, I know you guys went Olympics free last time around, so I got to ask <laughs> Steve, how how do you and your members feel about Boston's Olympic bid? How important to you, if at all, is it that Boston get this? Well, you know, I, I like sports. We've all grown up with sports, and the Olympics are very important. But my, and I hope to have the Olympics here, and it looks like we, we, we got a pretty good shot. But you a know lot what? Of construction jobs, right? Well, no, it isn't about construction jobs. It's about Massachusetts and Boston, in particular, being a world-class city and having people come here from all around the world and to have the ability to compete and to rebuild the areas maybe of the city that need rebuilding yeah but it isn't about construction jobs the construction jobs are work they're working right now they've got great opportunities right now so it isn't from a selfish standpoint the question i have to this adam and peter and most importantly is that if we're going to have the olympics we've got to be prepared to pay for it and if we can't pay for a fund a proper t properly or, or agree on a funding mechanism for the MBTA or we can't agree on how we're going to deal with our roads and bridges problem how are we going to host the Olympics in just a short decade would you support a ballot measure that would state that no taxpayer money be used to fund the 2024 Summer Olympics I don't think they've ever done that have they I mean I don't why would we not want to spend tax money to fund the Olympics it's a public it's a public good well the organizers from the but, beginning have been saying we'll, we'll do this without taxpayers listen I'll tell you I appreciate Steve's candor on that issue Did um, I, I appreciate your candor on that. I mean, so would you guys, would the AFL-CIO be working against such a ballot question? No, if it were I mean, I, we haven't. I would have to take this something like that before my board. But just my initial gut is what we're talking about. Public money should be for public good. The Olympics are public good, and that gets into the whole privatization thing. Is that there's a measure of privatization where sometimes privatization may be able to do better than public good, but public employees. But you've got to measure the public good and whether it's needed, and it gets into a different aspect. So I like the Olympics. I think it's exciting, but it's not a priority for me, especially when we have a, we have funding obligations. And let me say this: Massachusetts is a very wealthy state. When I got elected to the legislature, I think the income tax was 6.1 percent. It's down to like 5.1 percent now. That's cost us billions of dollars. Where that could have gone to pay down our bonds, that could have, especially the big dig obligation, the MBTA, I'm tens of billions of dollars since the 2000 era that, that has cost the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. We're a wealthy state, but for some reason we want to act a little silly and not invest in our future. And He's got me back again. 
I got He's you back. He's got me back again. No, I, I, I think, and I, I got to tell you, Steve, I, I think the way, I have real questions about the Olympics. It doesn't have to do with the public money. No. It has to do with larger priorities. And I like the candor with which you address the subject. It's I wish, almost, I, it's refreshing. It almost never happens, right, that someone well, in public I, life I, is I, that? I think that the terms under which Steve's talking about the Olympics is the terms under which we should be debating it. It's like we're debating a secret, you know. We can't come out and say what we really mean. Um, and I think there is a case to be made that the Olympics are, could be a public good. They're not a priority of mine, but I'd be willing to debate that. Right. I go along with that. Let's leave it there. Steve Tolman is the president of the Massachusetts AFL-CIO where he represents 400,000 working men and women. He was a state legislator for 17 years, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Steve Tolman, thanks a great deal for being here. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And it was terrific. Thank you. Peter Kadzis, as always, pleasure to share space with you. <laughs> Let's go do it some more in the newsroom. Working And that's going to do it for this week's Scrum. Thank you for listening. As always, if you were a fan of what you just heard, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. While you're at it, if you're feeling generous, you can leave a positive but frank review. You can also find links to iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud on our website, wgbhnews.org scrum. Feel free to drop us a line with any questions, comments, or ideas at scrum at wgbh.org. Our producer is Amanda McGowan. I'm Adam Riley, and the Scrum is a production of WGBH News. In the same boat with a lot of your friends, waiting for the day your ship will come in, and the tide's gonna turn, and it's all gonna roll your way. Working nights to fight, what a way to make a living, barely getting by. It's all taken and no giving, they just use your mind, and you never get the credit. It's Have you ever had the bacon toasted? Never. It looked... It looked good, but it honestly looked like too much. Like a stick of butter in each piece of bread. and Yeah. yeah. I mean, I will eat like 10 donuts in a sitting, but I can't do yeah, two too. pieces of bread. It's yeah. just too much.